Well, you can open your Bibles to James chapter 5. And it's finally time for us to begin this final chapter in James. And this last chapter begins in a memorable, memorable way with a sending rebuke of the rich, where we find that the riches of the rich will not save them in the end. And it's interesting to think of how fragile the whole notion of currency is. Currency, by definition, is just some medium for exchanging wealth. And in the earliest times, livestock, beads, shells, bones, are all used as various forms of currency. <clears throat> of course, you can't use an object that's too common like rocks or everyone becomes their own mint. But this is one, one of the main reasons coins were developed. Coins were a means of regulating currency and storing the value of wealth in the currency itself. Gold, silver, copper, they have a, an intrinsic value as currency. They can also be stamped with an image, which allows the government to control their production. But coins have a downfall. They're very cumbersome. They're difficult to use in large amounts. If you've tried buying a car with coins. So in time, nations developed paper money. Paper money was easy to transport, easy to use. It could also be stamped with an image to allow the government to control it. But paper money may have come with the greatest downfall of all. And that is temptation. Because paper money is just so easy to produce. So if a government's ever in a pinch, they can just print some more. Just keep printing it. But that leads to hyperinflation, which essentially reduces the value of the currency to zero. And by the way, that's what's happening in Venezuela right now. Their inflation is, I think it's something like 1.6 million percent. Inflation like this effectively destroys wealth. So you've got a, a million bucks stored in your house, and you're hidden in your house. You think you're rich, and then inflation strikes, and a loaf of bread costs $1,000. You're not so rich anymore. This just highlights the fleeting nature of wealth. It's like holding sand in your hand. There's just so many ways for you to lose it. And this is why many think gold is the only currency that matters. You just need to stockpile gold. Because when things go really bad, you know, precious metals are the only real measure of true wealth. But even this is not true for when things go truly bad and, and crisis really hits, we're talking people fighting for food and water, your gold is as good as a paperweight. That trust in money can only take you so far. And as sure as the sun sets every day, your, your money is eventually going to fail you. Most of us think of money as our ultimate source of security and comfort and peace. But this is a trap. Because it's only a matter of time before it betrays you. It's like sleeping in a coffin because it makes you feel cozy, but one day it's going to be nailed shut on you. And those who trust in their riches, they're digging their own grave. There's only one object of security, comfort, and peace, and that is the Lord, as you know, is the ultimate giver and taker of wealth and the giver and taker of life. You need to trust him and not wealth and serve him and not wealth. And even if one day comes and you lose everything, you will still be able to say, it is well with my soul. You know, that day is coming, right? Because in the end, everybody goes bankrupt. You do realize that, that even if you never lived through a financial crisis, you, you never saw a great depression, you had millions. You realize like the second you die, all of your bank accounts go to zero. You have nothing. And then what will you do? What will you trust in? You'll see how helpful the, the God of wealth is on that day. 
These are words of warning we need and words of reminder telling us despite how easy it is that we, we cannot place our trust and our hope in wealth. And such words of warning come to us from James this morning. Now into James 5, we find a stern warning to the rich. More than a warning, really, he delivers a a stunning rebuke, a, a judgment toward the rich. Not because they're rich, but because they gain their riches unjustly. They use them selfishly, and they're really trusting in their wealth to save them. The previous passage at the end of James 4 If you remember, I dealt with these Christian merchants who were pursuing profit, seeking to do business. And the problem with them was not their business, actually, but the fact that they weren't taking God's will into account. They were living as if they were in control of their own destinies. But we found, you know, there's a place for Christians to live, do business, even make a profit, so long as they're doing it God's way, according to his will, his word. God is free to to give increase and to bless his people. But that being said, there certainly is a wrong way to go about that. I think we all know it's it's the exception to find a, a super wealthy person who is a true servant of Christ. I think by and large, especially in our society, uh, the rich, they, they serve self, they serve money, not Christ. And in that respect, nothing has changed. But they have picked the wrong currency to invest in. Gold and silver hold no value before God. Faith is the only currency that God regards and that will count for anything in the end. And, and such people, though, though they may be rich, they are truly bankrupt. And it's to them that belongs this warning. James 5, 1 through 6. Let's read the, the passage now. James 5, look at verse 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Like I said earlier, these are easily the strongest words in James. Which is actually saying a lot because he does not hold back throughout the whole letter. Now to clarify, there's some question whether James is addressing wealthy people in the church or wealthy people outside of the church. And some believe he's referring to the rich in the church because his audience throughout James has mostly been Christians, the, the church. But when you look closely at the language here, it actually is pretty clear that he is, in this case, referring to the wealthy in the world. Throughout James, he's addressed his audience as brethren over and over. In fact, in the following passage, three times he will refer to them as his brethren. But in this passage, they're they're not brethren. There are no terms of endearment. And furthermore, back in chapter 4, James had some stern words for Christians who were caught up in worldliness. But even still, he called them to repent, 
to return to the Lord. But notice in this passage, there's no call for repentance. This is purely a pronouncement of judgment. In exposing their evil, he calls them to weep and howl, not repent. It's pretty extreme. The day of slaughter has come. They've stored up their treasure in the last days. This is all prophetic verbiage speaking of the final judgment. In fact, this whole passage reads like a blast from one of the Old Testament prophets. You might wonder, you know, why would James address the wicked, rich unbeliever in his letter if they're never going to read it? If they're not his audience, they'll never see this. Why even, why include this then? But is that not what the prophets in the Old Testament did so often? That God gave them oracles of judgment for the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians. Even though those nations would never really hear the message. And indeed, God offered such oracles of judgment in his word for the sake of his people. These words of judgment are meant to let God's people know two things. First, such judgments assured God's people that he saw their suffering. And the church, especially back then, was overwhelmingly poor. They were the ones who were suffering injustice at the hands of the rich. That they had no recourse, nothing they could do. But these words comfort them knowing that God, God sees. He hears your cries. He sees this injustice. And a day of reckoning will come. He's the Lord of hosts. And he'll, he'll send out the angel army to make all things right in the end. And so these words assure God's people that justice will be done in the end. And secondly, these words then encourage God's people just to patiently endure. You may find suffering and injustice in this life, and it may never be answered in this life. A day of deliverance may not be today, may not be tomorrow, but it will come. And so the takeaway is, is to likewise patiently endure. You might be suffering injustice, but patiently endure. And this, in fact, is precisely what James says in the following passage, really the rest of the letter, like verse 7, right after he says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And clearly, verses 1 through 6, it's a contrast. These aren't the brethren. These are the, the wicked rich. And they may prosper in this age, but as I said, they chose the wrong currency. You just keep trusting in the Lord firm in your faith. So undoubtedly, James is speaking to the wicked, wealthy in the world. But don't take these words for granted as if they have nothing to say to you and and for you. Let them steal your heart against the love of money and let them warn you of what becomes of those who invest in the riches of this world, who make their God wealth. And so let's observe now that the woeful outcome of those who serve wealth the woeful outcome of those who serve wealth. We'll do this along two points. First, the sorrow of those who serve wealth. The sorrow of those who serve wealth. And today, we, we typically expect a person to be charged and convicted of wrongdoing. And then comes the, the judgment, the pronouncement of judgment. But James reverses this. Seems like that the, the evil deeds of the rich were so well known and well established that he starts off with just the pronouncement of judgment upon the rich. 
And so he shows their coming sorrow in three ways. Let's look at these. First, misery. Verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So he begins this new section with come now. It means listen up, pay attention, take heed. Starting a new section, this is a diatribe and his target now is the rich. And to a large degree in the mind of Christ and the apostles, the rich really was synonymous with the unrighteous. Now, of course, we know this has to be qualified. There are plenty of exceptions. Abraham, Job, David in the Old Testament, Lydia, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon in the New Testament. Plenty of examples otherwise. It's not evil to possess wealth. In fact, to some degree, everyone possesses wealth. We know that God gives this ability. Deuteronomy 8.18, God gives the power to make wealth. In Proverbs 10.22, it says, it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. There's a, a type of sanctified wealth that comes from the hand of the Lord, and it's not accompanied by the sorrows of unjust gain. But the thing is that, you know, especially in the ancient world, most people were not getting rich by playing by the rules. Theirs was an unjust gain. They got rich at the expense of others, they prayed off the weak. They, they took advantage of the poor, defrauding them for profit. You know, the Old Testament prophet, Amos, he at one time specifically delivered a, a railing judgment to Israel because once upon a time, they were likewise consumed with this greed and this unjust gain. And so just listen, Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, where he says, hear this, you who trample the needy saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and, and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales. So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. What he's saying is that these merchants, they had no regard for God and his worship they, they couldn't wait for the Sabbath to end so that they could get back out there and just make money, make a profit at the expense of the poor, of course, whom they were cheating and defrauding. But a day of accounting is coming. It says later in verse 10, God says to them, I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I'll bring sackcloth in everyone's loins and, and baldness on every head. And I'll make it a time of mourning. For an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. This speaks of a day of judgment. It's a day of great reversal. The wicked rich may be riding high right now, but when this day of reckoning comes, like James says, they will weep and howl. They will learn on that day that their riches have betrayed them, that all the money in the world can't deliver them from the hound of God. And there's going to be an accounting. They're going to be held accountable for how they acquired all that wealth, how they used all that wealth. And so James says they'll weep and howl. This, these are words picturing despair and grief and guilt. And these are hopeless words that there's, there's no more hope. That's because they've exchanged the only hope. They have turned down the only hope of Christ in exchange for the hope of wealth. But 
on that final day, they're going to find that's a false hope. Now Christ said, John, or rather Luke 6.24, Christ himself said, woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. This is as good as it's going to get for you. In the end, their riches will provide them no comfort. And that's because in the end, they won't have any riches. And this leads to the second sorrow of those who serve wealth. Bankruptcy. First, misery. Second, bankruptcy. He says in verse 2, Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. In the ancient Near East, there were three primary sources of wealth. You might say, Forms of currency, crops, clothing, and coins. And James is pretty much arguing that all three are going to fail in the end. He says, first, your riches have rotted. The word for rot, sapo, means to corrupt, to destroy, to perish. It it speaks of hoarded goods. And most likely, James has in mind just the full barns of the rich right after the harvest. Full with, you know, the wheat or the barley harvest. But such crops, they only last so long, and you can only eat so much yourself. But the rich were known for hoarding far more than they needed, far more they could ever eat. And despite the fact that their full barn could you know, feed the whole starving town, they were holding on to it. This was their, their investment. This was their wealth, their security. Yeah, it might all rot and go to waste, but they've, you know, just in case, they've got to hold on to it. And here's the problem with this. You know, imagine you had like a, a pizza party for your kid's birthday and you way overdid it. So you take home seven large pizzas. You take them home, but it's way more than you can eat. And you know, they're not going to last that long, but still you decide to hoard them. And then granted, you know, you're, you're probably going to throw most of it out anyway, but hey, you have the option. And maybe like you'll save on a few lunches, you would have gone out to eat otherwise, right? So you hoard. Meanwhile, you see a homeless family and they ask you, do you have anything to eat? And you say back, no, you know what? Sorry, I'm, I'm pretty much maxed out. Everything I have, I need for my future. See, that type of senseless hoarding we're, we're talking about. And it gets especially serious when you're living in an agrarian society where people are literally at the risk of starving. Meanwhile, that, that guy has a barn you know, filled with grain. It's got enough food for everyone, but the rich owner won't, won't share or just give what is necessary for life because that is his wealth investment, even though most will end up rotting anyway. Right? To God, this is a moral issue. What James is saying is your riches, they've already rotted. You just don't know it yet. To, to senselessly hoard them and not help others, that will one day testify against you. The same goes with garments. Outer robes, cloaks, mantles. These were another form of recognized wealth in that culture. They were often very nicely made, embroidered, to be passed down as heirlooms. Is it okay to have nice things? Yes, of course it is. But is there a limit? You've got a walk-in closet filled with winter jackets you never use. And meanwhile, your neighbor is freezing to death. Shouldn't that, like, Trouble your conscience. You know, what, what, what use is that? And so James tells them, your garments have become moth-eaten. You know, the rich are hoarding. That, and they're refusing to help others. For what? Just to feed some moths? Like, how, what, what good is that? They're going to perish anyway. 
might as well share to help others. And finally, he says, your gold and silver have rusted. Now, James surely knows that gold and silver don't rust. Now, it's possible, actually, that their coins were mixed with such a high degree of of alloy that they did rust. Or James could be channeling prophetic language to show that, you know, even your gold and silver won't last long. And that, of course, is the point here. You know, the rich, they believe that gold and silver, that's their ultimate security blanket. That's what we really fall back on when, when times get tough. He's got to stockpile the precious metals, and that will get them out of whatever trouble they're in. But you see, when the day of the Lord comes, that bar of gold is pretty much a paperweight. It's as good as rusted out iron. It's worth nothing on that day. God doesn't recognize its value. And so what James is really exposing that the bankruptcy of the rich here. He uses three uh, perfect verbs. These are what we call prophetic perfects. Saying, you know, they may be rich right now, but their demise is so certain for those who are trusting in their wealth. It, it's like it's already happened. They are effectively bankrupt before God right now. They just don't know it yet. And it's a fearful place to be. We find that the, the wealth of the rich will one day flee from them and not just flee, it will then turn around and testify against them. And this is the third sorrow of those who trust wealth. Number three, judgment. Misery, bankruptcy, judgment. James is just listing that the coming sorrows of those who serve wealth. He says in verse three, your gold and silver have rusted and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Near in verse 3, the corrosion of their gold is now personified. And it's a witness against them. And this witness takes a stand. And it's indicting the rich. And what's it saying? It's saying guilty. Guilty of greed. Guilty of hoarding. Guilty of selfishness. When you were, you were given so much. And what, do you think you earned it? Who gave you your mind? Who gave you your abilities? Who gave you all those opportunities? Who enabled you to make wealth? You owe everything to God. Freely you received. Freely you should have given, especially to help those suffering and need. But you hoard it all for self. And that's going to serve as proof positive on the final day that God was not your God. Money was your God, which in reality, that just means yourself was your God. And so first, the rust of the riches testifies against them. And then in a dramatic turn, it it seems the rust becomes their executioner. It's pretty serious. He says the rust will consume your flesh like fire. It's it's pretty extreme, but it's clearly picturing that the fires of hell, Christ himself said it's a place of unquenchable fire. And that James has this in mind is confirmed by the last phrase in verse 3. He says, it's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. The last days, that's that's a technical term in the New Testament. Speaking of this final age, this is the last age of human history before Christ's kingdom comes. And Christ and his kingdom may not break into the world tomorrow, but it might. And we were to live with this imminent expectation of the Lord's return 
And that should change how we live, knowing that this world is not our home. This life is not our life. And while we're here, it's, it's not wrong to enjoy many of the blessings that, that God has given us. But we know that we're compelled to, to give, to sacrifice, to help others. Because ultimately, we're, we're not living this life just for ourselves. We're not living just to serve self, but to God and thereby others. So we're going to be happy to put others ahead of self. Like Philippians 2 tells us. You know, Jesus told a parable of this rich man. And he had, he had a surplus of crops. A huge harvest came in. And so he decided to tear down all his barns and build bigger ones. He could store more and more crops, more goods. That way he'd be set for life. He'd have so much stored up for years to come. He could just kick back. He says, you know, eat, drink, be merry, just live the good life. He's, he's got it made. But then in Luke 12, verse 20, it says, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? And so Christ said, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Just beware and make sure this is not you. You must pick the right currency to invest in. Crops, clothing, coins, gold, silver, dollars, real estate, stocks, bonds. These are all the wrong choice. You need to be rich toward God. And and you do that by investing in faith. It's an all-in investment, but it, it pays rich dividends, namely eternal riches, eternal life with God. That, that's the only currency God will accept. That's all he's looking for. Who has faith? Now, speaking of this courtroom terminology, the wealth of the rich, it's betrayed them. It, it takes a stand. It's testifying against them. What exactly is the indictment though? What, what have they done so wrong? Is it just because they're rich? Is it they're being judged just because they're rich? That's not the case. We know that's not the case. And indeed, Verses 4 through 6 show, we find now the indictment of the rich. What, why are, are they receiving such harsh words of judgment? What have they done so wrong? And so we find, secondly now, the sin of those who serve wealth. James began with the sorrow of those who serve wealth. He, he front-loaded with the, the coming judgment upon them. But now he's going to back up and reveal Why? And that's going to come in the sin of those who serve wealth. And these are the charges that are going to be brought up against the wicked on that final day. And we find another triplet. First, fraud. Fraud, verse 4. He says, verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You know, up until relatively recent times, most societies were dominated by a gentry class. This was a small number of wealthy landowners where they owned the land, they owned the fields, they controlled the food. And they needed workers for their fields. And people also needed, you know, money and food to survive. And so that just left most people to hire themselves out as day laborers, work the field, 
You make a daily wage. Many of them were living on a truly daily bread situation. Pay was expected at the end of the workday. And without it, some may not be able to eat that night. And it's not like you could charge a meal to a credit card. And so this scene in verse 4, it pictures these wealthy landowners at harvest time. You know, the wheat, the barley harvest has come in, whatever it's going to be. Their barns are filled. The work has been done. These laborers have just manually harvested and mowed the field, picked up all the sheaves, brought them in. The work is done. Now it's, it's payday for the end of all this labor. And payday has come and they need this, this pay, whether it's for the day or for the winter. They, they just need the pay, obviously. But the rich landowner says no. He says, too bad. You're not getting paid. We don't have any explanation. doesn't really matter what the explanation is. He's just, he withholds their pay, it says. He refuses. This was a great injustice and would have led to real human suffering. But often the rich, they just got away with it. And what, the, what could the poor, especially back then, what could they really do? Call the cops. There's no cops. File a lawsuit. That there's no court that's going to hear them. And there's really no recourse. They could boycott the landowner and, and not work his field the next year. But again, they'd just be hurting themselves. They should be starving another year. All they could do is suffer and cry out. And that's what they did. They suffered and they cried out. And that they complained against the rich, but to no use. Their cries were not heard. But what James is telling us is that God heard. They were heard by someone. That their outcry for justice may not have reached the ears of those landowners. But it did reach the ears of the one who owns all land. And God sees this injustice. He hears their cry and, and he will judge. You know, what the rich think they can do with immunity, God, God sees. And he, he's taking it into account. You know, these practices were actually explicitly forbidden by God in the Old Testament law. For example, Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15, God said this. He said, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it. So that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Right? This withholding pay, it is like literally sin in scripture. And God tunes his ears to the cries of the weak and the weary and the outcast. He hears and he's going to respond. He, after all, he's the Lord of Sabaoth, and that word just means Lord of hosts. Host itself referring to the angelic host. And so to say God is the Lord of hosts, as scripture often does, basically means he's the commander in chief of the, the whole angelic army. And if we learn that one, one single angel can slaughter up 185,000 warriors, what can an army of angels do? It's not going to be a fair fight, is the point. And God may restrain his forces for now, his judgment for now, but the day of the Lord is coming and all those cries will be answered. Secondly, a second charge, a second sin of the wicked rich, self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Look at verse five. 
He says next, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. And two words are used here to describe the excesses of the rich. The first, trufao, they lived luxuriously. This word is not always a negative. In fact, for example, in the Old Testament, God promised Israel a life of ease and comfort in the promised land if they obeyed his word. And God is free to, to give access to his people that they can live well in the land, so to speak. But this word can also speak of a, an overindulgent lifestyle, just focused on yourself. And, and that surely is what it means here. It's confirmed by the second word that James uses in parallel. He says that they led a life of wanton pleasure. That, that phrase is all one word, spatalao, kind of sounds Italian. It's always used negatively and it, it refers to dissipation, just overindulgence in, in self Makes me immediately think of William Randolph Hearst. You know, we got his castle up the coast and it's beautiful to see. But when you think about it, it really is a monument to just excess and just self-indulgence. Either the stories of his opulence are pretty much endless. For example, he had his own zoo on site filled with all these exotic animals from around the world, including like a polar bear. And he wanted to make the polar bear from the stories we heard, you know, feel at home. And so every single day he imported ice. This is back before he had your own freezer. He imported ice by ship to his private pier, which was then trucked up the hill for the polar bears. Keep them cool every day. And mind you, this was all during the Great Depression. And so like, it's, it's not wrong to have nice things. But when you're, you're spending so lavishly and living in the lap of luxury and, and you see people in like bread lines starving to death, Shouldn't that trouble your conscience, you know, a little bit? And God once upon a time convicted Jerusalem for this sin of greed and just self-indulgence. Ezekiel 16, 49, he said of them, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. See, the main problem of the self-indulgence is not that it's, it's wrong to spend money on yourself or have nice things. It's just when you do so to the, the total neglect of the poor and needy around you. And to fatten yourself while others starve, that's an injustice that God sees. It's just over and over in scripture. And in reality, he says all they're doing is fattening themselves in the day of slaughter. Like they don't realize it's, it's slaughter day. And that imagery likewise comes from the Old Testament. You know, the sword is lifted above the necks of the wicked. And it's just ready to come down. The slaughter is just waiting. Meanwhile, they're, they're like the ox with its head down. They're lowing. They're just continuing to feed themselves and fatten themselves. Totally oblivious that this day of accounting is coming. That someone's actually watching and keeping track of how they gain their money how they spend their money, how they just used it entirely on themselves and to the total neglect of their neighbor. They just keep eating. And so the rich incur greater and greater guilt. And meanwhile, the day of accounting, it may come at any moment. And finally, a third charge is brought against the rich. Lastly, murder. 
murder. That's what he says, verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This word for condemned, it's a judicial term. Speaking of passing a sentence on someone. And that's enough of a hint to lead us to believe that the rich were not literally murdering the poor. Although we wouldn't put it past them in the ancient world. But they were judicially murdering them. And by their actions, they were effectively killing the poor and the righteous. Most likely, the rich used puppet courts to uphold their, their oppression. And people today like to complain against our court system. You shouldn't do that. And of course, it can be improved. It can largely be improved. But you just get a glimpse of the system of justice in the ancient world. And you will never again complain about how good we have it today. I mean, very rarely are ancient societies ruled by just judges and impartial law. And most were in the pockets of the rich and powerful who did their bidding. Favors were returned for favors. And meanwhile, the poor and the powerless were the pawns caught up in the middle of this exchange. And so these guys, as their pay is withheld, yeah, they can go to the courts, but nothing's going to happen. The judges are in the pockets of the rich. They, They uphold their oppression they're effectively, a lot of them, you could say, are effectively murdered. I mean, do you think it's, it's possible that some of them may have even starved to death while, while the barns of the rich were full of food? you think that's ever happened before? It has. And meanwhile, James says, to finish, the righteous man, he, he does not resist. Either he's not able to resist or he refuses to resist. The latter is more likely as we're called to follow the example of Christ our Lord when suffering injustice. Christ, he was the ultimate righteous one, right? But he did not resist while suffering injustice. But he entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 And if we can have access to justice, we're going to take it, just like Paul appealed to Caesar. Yeah, we'll take it. But when push comes to shove, the the point is that the righteous, we can't fight fire with fire. We can't turn to evil to fight evil. We don't have that card. If that means our suffering, well, then we're going to suffer. And we're going to trust God who judges righteously, just like our Lord did. And the silent suffering of the righteous serves as one last voice testifying against the rich. And with that, James ends. That's it. That's all he gives here. It's a pretty serious passage. Again, James is channeling these oracles of judgment like the prophets of old. It's really channeling the words of Christ himself. You remember Matthew 6, 19 through 21, where Christ said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Christ really reveals that this whole issue of wealth is a heart issue. It's not about how much money you possess. It's about how much money possesses you. You can't serve two masters, God and wealth. But the way you spend your money the way you gain your money, that quickly reveals the God whom you really serve. And to the wicked rich, well, be warned. 
The day of the Lord is coming. It will be a day of great reversal. The life does not consist of possessions. So don't be deceived. Rather, be transformed by turning to Christ. That he's the only hope any of us have. And and faith in him, that's the only currency that that God accepts. Our own deeds and efforts and even offerings, they mean nothing to God outside of Christ. You could give a billion dollars to the church and still go to hell. And that's because, you know, we can't pay down our own sin debt a single cent. And God doesn't accept cash or credit. He only accepts the the perfect finished sacrifice of Christ, his son, who died on the cross and rose again to pay for our sins. Christ was rich, but he became poor for us, taking on our entire sin debt, paying for our sins, that he might give to us in exchange just his riches for free. It's a free grace gift to those who believe in him. But this is only for the humble and the meek and the poor in spirit. And so if you're here this morning, rich or poor, and you've not turned to Christ, you can receive this warning. But then repent, believe, turn to Christ, rejoice. Because it's by the, the currency of faith alone, you can inherit eternal riches that will neither rust nor be destroyed. Until then, for those of us in Christ, the message is to patiently endure. That's James's next point. You know, the day of James, like probably 99.9% of the church would have identified not with the rich, but with the poor and the oppressed. These were the ones who were suffering at the hands of the rich. And they needed these words, assuring them that God hears their cries for deliverance and justice. And the day of deliverance will come. But until then, be patient, endure. That, that's its own worthwhile message. And we're going to give it all the time we have next week as it comes in the next passage, the need for endurance. That said, I have to mention, you know, things are a bit different for us here in America. Because I think as American Christians, most of us identify with the rich. You might think, I'm not rich, I only make 50000 a year. But no, by the world standards and by history standards, you're still rich. Now, have you ever struggled for daily bread? Daily bread. Have you ever really feared dying from exposure to the elements because you had nowhere to go? Maybe like one in a hundred, maybe? It's a blessing to be able to say that, but don't take for granted your blessings. God can give increase in life, comfort. But those of us in America, we would do well to, to take, take a passage like this and just make sure we are not envying the rich or taking part in their injustices. Now, we may have some wealth, but we must not turn a blind eye to the needy. We can't become obsessed with satiating our every desire. And we cannot live as if this life is all about possessions. Now, it's still true that how you save, spend, gain, and give your money, that's, that's the, the truest reflection of your heart. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Whom do you really serve? Remember what James taught us just back in chapter 2, 15 through 17. He said, if a brother or sister, is a fellow person in the church, 
is without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works is dead being by itself. And we learn that such evil, it's invalidating your faith claim. And how we use our, our wealth is a reflection of our salvation. And granted, you know, in America, we, we don't see this. Do we see someone in the church who has no daily bread and has no clothes? We, we don't, actually. That's, again, part of our blessing. But still, as we've received grace and undeserved favor, we just to make sure we're, we always have an eye toward others and showing them that same grace and undeserved favor, helping whatever needs they might have. You know, we can't give salvation, but we can share the gospel first and foremost, and then we can take care of their material needs as well, especially if we have overflowing barns. You know, the gospel should transform us into givers, just grace givers. So it's fitting for us all to ask ourselves these convicting questions. Do you hoard? Do you overaccumulate? Do you defraud and deceive to get more? Do you live in self-indulgence and excess, especially at the expense of others in need around you, your neighbors? Or do you deny self, sacrifice, give, and, and share with those in need? The New Testament gives us no numbers. Like you must give away 10% or 20 or 30. New Testament says nothing about the amount you must give. It just gives us principles. Give generously. Give with a happy heart. Give sacrificially. Give to meet the needs of others, especially those in the church. Give to advance the gospel. Give to support the, the ministry of the local church. Just be a, a grace giver. And Paul said in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, he talked to the rich in the church because there are some. And he said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy and instruct them to, to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. You know, God has, has blessed some in the church to be rich in this present age, but in Christ, they should be transformed into givers. We're just out of the overflow of their heart. They're, they're excited, not just to only spend on themselves, but to, to help those around them who are truly in need. That's, that's a testimony to the power of the gospel. You don't get that in the world, but the, the gospel shows we've received so much. How can we not give, freely give to those around us? So check your heart this morning. You know, what currency have you invested in? The riches of, of this world, they're going to fail you. They're going to betray you. And the God of wealth will prove false. But the one true God, he, he never fails. He, he'll take care of your every need. And he'll even make you eternally blessed as you seek him by faith. So give. Give to him your heart. Offer up your whole life on the altar and let, let your giving be a reflection of your faith. And then you'll be, as Paul said, storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that, which is life indeed. Let's pray.
Now, Father in heaven, we, we praise you for this word from James, and we need, at times, these convicting words. You've included them in scripture, and it's for the edification of your church, and sometimes we need a, a reproof or at least a warning, especially in America where by world standard and, and history standard, we, we have much. Our barns are, are full. We are not in want for daily bread. We have more than enough. We thank you for that blessing. You're the God who, who gives wealth. It's a, a, a blessed time to be alive, and we are thankful. May we not be filled with, with arrogance or conceited, but thank you for all that we have and that we can share in. You're, you're the God who gives that. We recognize it from your hand. And for that very reason, we're happy to, to give it to the hands of others. That we've received eternal life in Christ. What else do we really need? With that, we're content. Even if we lose everything, we have Christ, our treasure, and that, that's all that matters. And may just his grace gift enable us and encourage us to just do the same. That we are not worshiping wealth or money, but we worship Christ. And if that means that there's a time in our heart to, to give away, we will do so happily. Convict us, challenge us how we use, how we gain, how we spend wealth. It says so much about our hearts, Lord, to just purify our hearts. Give us a, a passion for Christ and his gospel, his kingdom, and let our money follow. That, that's all that really matters. Purify us, your people, and convict us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.